0: And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast, brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. Right, folks, there you have it. Another fine introduction from our friend, Larry Babb. Thank you for that, Larry. Yes, you have tuned in to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. I am your host, David Steele, and I am super excited to bring you what I think will be a most enjoyable episode. Uh, we're going to listen in today on an interview we did in 2014 with the very great and never late Bob Moravez, AKA Floyd Lippincott Jr. Now, any fan of drag racing will obviously know who Bob is. Uh, He's easily one of the most recognized and most notorious characters uh, the sport has ever produced. Uh, You know him for his years piloting the freight train twin engine dragster during the 1960s. And also for having one of the single greatest stories connected to him from what is possibly the most colorful time in drag racing history. Um, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, we are here to listen to Bob tell us his story firsthand. So uh, as you'll hear, uh, nobody can tell a story better than Bob. So, But what I do want to do, I want to mention uh, just how generous a guy Bob is. Uh if you saw the running time of this podcast, you'll notice that Mr. Moravez was happy to give us plenty of that and to share everything and anything we wanted to know about his time in drag racing. Uh, that and the fact that he's one of the most enthusiastic people that I've ever known when it comes to this great stuff that we love, the hot rodding and, and racing. If, if I was asked to leave a recording behind in a time capsule to inform future generations on what the quote unquote spirit of hot routing sounds like. Uh, it would be a recording of Bob. Uh, for me, he just defines what this stuff is about and what someone is like once they are completely taken by the noise and the danger and the speed and the achievement of wrestling insane amounts of power and, making it do what you want uh without killing yourself um that to me is what bob moravez encapsulates uh he should be an international spokesperson for hot rodding as far as i'm concerned and actually he is uh uh, because i do know that he's been somewhat of a regular at the drag Racing hall of fame in england uh he's made appearances at overseas events such as uh goodwood festival of speed so Apparently, he is doing what he can to contribute his, uh, you know, kind con- you know spread his infectious enthusiasm for this stuff, which is just awesome. Um, but beyond that, uh, it's it's truly one of the thrills of my life to be able to call him a friend. Uh, Bob has been incredible to me. He's been incredible to to the Amer- the American Hot Rod Foundation in you know again not just giving his time but. Uh, introducing us and the work we do to his many friends in the world of drag racing and uh, putting us on the map, you know, with individuals like uh, Tommy Ivo, Al Teague, Dave McClellan, many others. Um, so he's a true ambassador for, uh, you know, for this stuff. Um, and his spirit is only surpassed by his achievements, which is an extremely rare thing. But uh, as you'll hear, Bob is ain't a thin book. Uh, He's got a lot to say, and much to tell. And we are excited for you who have tuned in to now be able to sit back, turn it up and listen to our interview with the great Bob, aka Floyd Lippincott Jr. Moravis. If you would, would you start with your name? Right.
1: My name is Bob Moravis. And I was born March tenth, 1938. In Los Angeles, California, but I claim to be a Burbank guy. You know, as far as conscious memory about cars and all that stuff is in Burbank, California. Mm-hmm.
0: And when when would you have moved to Burbank?
1: My family moved to Burbank approximately when I was about six years old. We lived at 407 North Lincoln Street, and my dad's shop was in the back of the property.
0: Were your folks native to
1: Yes, my mother grew up in Los Angeles and my dad grew up in Los Angeles. No, I'm sorry, my dad did not. My dad came to Ellis Island when he was two years old with his mother and five siblings and was abandoned by his father at the time in New York City. And my grandmother, his mother, made her way out here to the West Coast and was working in the soup kitchens, you know, in the 20s. What uh, What country did your father
0: have?
1: Czechoslovakia. I'm Czechoslovakian. My mother's English and Dutch.
0: Was yeah. your father at all into things mechanical? or anything?
1: Yes, he loved fishing and he couldn't afford to buy boats. So I grew up with my dad when he could afford it, uh, building boats and that stuff. I can remember as a young kid uh, being taken out to fish the kelp beds of San Pedro area and that stuff and getting sick, getting seriously sick. I call it, I was a, I was a designated chummer. You know, if anybody knows what that is, it's fishing. Chumming the water. Yeah, well, that was me and my breakfast was chumming the water. Mm. You know, so he would drop me off at the, at the uh, lighthouse in San Pedro and I'd have the three-mile walk back into uh, uh, a cove that my dad used to launch the boat at. Mm. I mean, even before that, he would go to some of the beaches and basically launch the boat in the surf and go out fishing. And I remember one time the, fish ca- the boat capsized, and we ended up with the boat on top of this. It was a, a 14-foot rowboat with a little outboard motor on it. Mm. Yeah. Very mechanical man. Uh, uh, basically, when he opened the shop up in Victory Boulevard, he uh, bought equipment that he bought for $50, a welder, a lathe, an arbor press, a drill press, and a set of torches for 50 bucks in 1945. Mm. I was seven years old at the time.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Had a kind of a machine shop in the
1: family, really. Yeah, because back then in the washing machine business at the war, you couldn't buy parts, but you still had to wash clothes with the wringer machine, so my dad had to make parts. I've got pictures of my dad's shop at the time when I used to sweep the floors and that, where you'd have wringer machines and you'd have to fix rollers. So, I mean, you had to think outside the box because you couldn't go to the store and buy it. You know, And and since all the manufacturing of like Maytag. Maytag factory closed down three years and was making Allison engines for aircraft. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, fast forward to the years of Dave Zuschel, who used to build top fuel motors and that from CNT, He had an Allison motor in his shop one day that he was getting ready to put in a racing plane and it had Maytag valve covers on it. So that man it was built. That valve cover was built at the Maytag factory in Newton, Iowa, sometime between 1942 and 1945. Hmm. You know, that's a great resolve of this country. You know, we we don't we're not we don't queue up for a line. We make our own line. Mm-hmm. You know, and the technology and that stuff.
0: Yeah. So, do you feel like you develop an interest in things mechanical from your dad with, at a young age?
1: Oh, absolutely. You had to. You had to. You couldn't go to the store and buy a part. So basically you had to figure a way out to make the part. I still do that today. There are times today, in fact, I did a service call a day on a machine where I had to retrofit a dryer vent so that the dryer would work properly. And so I had to take sheet metal and make the thing that fits behind a dryer that had uh, an area that it couldn't leak hot water, I mean, air and, and dust inside the machine. And so I had to retro and fix that thing that you couldn't go to the store and buy so this lady with dryer would work properly. Because her complaint was it took forever to dry, and there was a vent issue. Nothing wrong with the dryer. So buying a new one wouldn't have solved the problem. You had to fix the installation. So it that goes on. That separates me from the parts changer guy.
0: Yeah. yeah. So did you want to work... I started out? pushing
1: a broom around the store in 1947. I'm 40. I got paid in 1948 when I turned 10. But every day after school, since my mother was a secretary, I would be there. You know, ride my bike over from the school I was going to. My brother and I sweep the floors, do my homework, and then, you know, the first job I can remember having was taking all the old machines and breaking them apart with a hammer for scrap metal. Because the scrap metal back then put food on the table, Mm -hmm. you know. And then things turned well. My dad was a good businessman. I can remember in 48 when I turned 10 and started working there. My mom and dad, since my dad liked fishing, bought a small little house in Catalina. So in Catalina, during that period of time, that was the great place at the Wrigley chewing gum factory you know, had owned there and the casino was the best place to go dancing and ballroom and that. So I was, I was very lucky to spend a, a month a year over in this little small little 400 square foot house that my mom and dad had and to feed myself. I was a good swimmer so the white steamship would come in during the summertime loaded with people and I'd be in the water begging for coins huh. and they'd throw coins and my eyesight was well enough. I never realized that until later in life but a lot of kids would go after any coin that came off the boat. Because you remember, the white steamship, the people were at a railing that weren't close to the ground. They were 20 feet off the water line. So as if coins coming at you, you could see the difference between brass and silver. So I wouldn't I let the, everybody else fight over the brass, and I'd go after the silver, the, the quarters and nickels. You know, and I was a very good swimmer. That's before goggles and before swim fins. You just free dive into an area of the water that was 20 foot deep, and you had to fight for these coins, you know, pick them, and, you, and your trunks had a pocket in them. These trunks don't, but the trunks had a pocket inside. And you could feed yourself for 35 cents, you know? saltwater taffy and a hot dog and a Coke was 25 cents. Yeah. You know? And then and when the steamship went out that night, the same people on there, and you're in the water again, you know? It was a great life. I wouldn't change it for nothing.
0: I can't imagine Catalina at that time. That must have been so perfect.
1: It was very perfect. And the theater, the big, huge theater which held four thousand people down below, had a new movie every two days, because it was vacation people. You got two, two shows, serials, and three cartoons for twenty-five cents. Everything was a quarter. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what you do at night time. You know, a great place to grow up. Later on in life, my wife became a beach commissioner, so I was able to take her. She was able to, because the beach commission had fired uh, over there the beaches and that for LA County beaches, and show where I lived. And uh, another sidebar to that whole thing was Maytag. I used to do warranty work for Maytag service. And they asked me one time if I did service in Avalon. And I told them about that being a, a place where you only could go one time a day with a boat across except on weekends. So they paid me to go fix a washing machine that was under warranty in Catalina, which turned out to be the Wrigley Mansion, which had turned into a bed and breakfast in the 90s. You know, And I spent the whole day there. I filmed it with me getting off the boat with my Maytag hat on and, you know, and went to this Wrigley Mansion to do a service call on that. And Maytag Factory paid me. You know, but anyway, that's another story. That's pretty
0: cool, though. I like
1: it. You know, really, really great story. Great stuff. You know.
0: Well, speaking of being a kid and where you were growing up, what was, what was Burbank like when you were a little kid? What do you remember of, of the community?
1: And well, like everywhere else in this great country of ours, the doors were left open. You, know? you, could, you could ride your bikes. You didn't need a lock on it. I went to parochial school, Catholic schools. And uh, got a really good education, although I had a, a problem of remembering and learning things, unlike my brother. And later on, it became called dyslexia, and that stuff. And in my washing machine business, I happen to I have a customer who perfected the word dyslexia and was very instrumental in the groundwork of learning and teaching dyslexic people and other children's diseases, Dr. Elena Boder, but that's another washing machine story. You know, but anyways back then they didn't know anything about the disorders of not being able to read properly. My brother had a perfect memory and he didn't open a book up and got straight A's and I had to bust my tail to get Cs and D's. Was very discouraging in that stuff. But I think it helped me later. All those little things kinda helped me later in my racing career, you know, because it made me try working harder. At what I wanted to do.
0: Do you remember Burbank being a kind of a youthful community or was it?
1: Oh yeah, after the Second World War you had all kinds of new babies around, you know, they, they call it the baby boomers now. But there was an awful lot of kids too, my age, and that some of the people, in fact, one of my oldest friends, I got to know when I was four or five years old. Now so we're still friends to this day. We're two months apart in age, we're both named Bob, we both have a love of of cars and that and uh, part of my learning to do things with cars because he used to have a he was a night job, a night manager for a Chevron gas station and when the Chevrolets came out in 56, 55, and Duntoff had the camshaft you could go down to the Chevrolet store and buy, which was a community Chevrolet here in Burbank, and that stuff. And you have no idea how many Duntov cams I put in small block Chevrolets in two hours' time, taking the radiator out, take the front cover off, take the manifold off, take the distributor out, slide that in, put the tappets in, put the you know, everything back together again in two hours' time, fire it up and drive her out, so she'd go rumpity rumpity rump. Because we had Bob's big boy in town. We had to go cruise. That's right. You know? What
0: was that called? The Duntop 98? Or what was that
1: I don't remember the number of it, that stuff, but we bought boxes full of them, community Chevrolet, with the solid tappets. And I got so good at the distributors, I could get that baby right on without putting the timing light on it. Wow. Yeah, you know? but it, it's repetitious. You do it yeah. over again. You learn how to take it apart. You put everything up on top dead center for so all the numbers and that. You don't turn the motor over. Mm-hmm. Take it, and you make it simple.
0: Yeah.
1: You know? Yeah. Make it real simple. Hmm. You know? And you do that at a gas station. You know, back then when you used to service gas, you pull in a gas station, they did your windows and they pumped the gas, checked your air tires, checked your oil and water and the whole shot. It was a a very, Burbank was a small little city. It had two great industries. It had Warner Brothers for the studios, had Columbia Ranch, which is part of what used to be, what now is universal, and it had Lockheed. Lockheed was a premier place in Burbank and during the war and after the war during the cold war you had that factory running 24 7 you know building these exotic aircraft and all the people who worked there lived in the city you got to meet these people fixing their wash machines and the one thing you didn't want to do is be on any street any major street in Burbank when shift changed the shift changed at eight o'clock in the morning four o'clock and midnight You know, Midnight wasn't a bad deal, but you had 27,000 people leaving that factory every eight hours. And what did they make? P-38s, SR-71s, U-2s, you know, all those exotic aircraft, all the jet aircraft that broke the speed of sound, the P-80 shooting stars. Uh, A couple of my customers were like uh, uh, Milo Bertram was a famous uh, P-38 test pilot. And his kids are still my cousin. One of his kids, is still my cousin, still living in a family house, two blocks away from here on Walnut Street. That's City of Burbank. People don't leave this town Mm -hmm. because it got its own school system, its own police department, its own fire department. Mm -hmm. You know, it's over a hundred-year-old city.
0: Hmm. And it's its own municipality.
1: Own municipality. Its own, own. You know, like I said, police department, school system, everything, and even property values. You, you can take the same comparable house, not too much today because all properties are kind of skewed, but when I bought my first house in 66, the same house two blocks away would have been $5,000 cheaper. You know, I bought my first house when I won uh, a big race at Lions Drag Strip and put a down payment on the house and $32,000 for this three bedroom house where two blocks away it would have been $25,000. Simply because of the school system, the, all, all of it. It was yeah. a much better city, better streets, everything. Mm-hmm. But one unique thing that started my drag racing career was a car club called the Road Kings of Burbank, which is still going to this day. And they didn't, allow, they didn't like guys to be rolling around in the streets. And I had a problem. I had fancy cars, hot cars, and I got a lot of tickets. You know, my first really good car was a 53 Corvette that I happened to buy from Betty Grable you know which people think wow how did I get to do that well basically the picture is over my left corner this is a Corvette right here wow. and when I worked for my father and that stuff and started going to school I could drive when you're 15 and a half in Notre Dame high school is the high school I was going to my first car was a panel truck a sedan delivery my dad used to have a 49 Chevy panel truck and I used to take 10 guys to school so that was my freshman and sophomore year well summer of 54 my dad asked me if I would like a better car. And you've you got to remember, 53 Autorama, Motorama was at the Pan Pacific, and I just saw this 53 Corvette, this concept car. And that's And oh my god. And so my dad, I told him, I said, well, let me call my dealer. So Ted Seanlaw Chevrolet on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood was the guy my dad bought all the trucks from for the, car, for the shop. And he called him up and said, you know, I have a customer that's got one that she doesn't want anymore. So we got in a car, drove over there to Beverly Hills, and here in this garage of hers, there's five Cadillacs and this little 53 Corvette sitting there, and it had only 1,800 miles on it. She never drove it, because she was given the car by General Motors, because she had done a movie and that stuff. I think it was called How to Marry a Millionaire in 52 or 3. And some of the cars were General Motors cars, and they gave her, which ended up being number three VIN number. I only found that out a year ago. That car sold at Barrett-Jackson auction about three years ago for a million dollars. You know? But I had the car first. But back then, you didn't worry about VIN numbers. Yeah. Plus, the PowerGlide didn't last very long, and so I had to put a stick shift in it, which I had to modify for the six-cylinder. And use a Nash Metropolitan. Talk about thinking out of the box. There was no place to hang it. The 55 Corvette hadn't come out yet with the v V8 in it. Mm-hmm. And the stick shift, it was all power glides. So the only, I needed to figure out some way of getting a clutch to work for, hydro, for, for hydraulic, like a master cylinder. Well, Nash Metropolitan had a hydraulic slave cylinder to ran their clutch. You could go to Chevrolet, buy the bell housing, buy the clutch, buy the Armed by the three-speed transmission that fits right on the back of that six-cylinder motor, the blue flame motor, in the car. But there was no way of activating the clutch. Except I found Nash Metropolitan, so I modified the car, hung a pedal down alongside the brake pedal, you know, as a clutch pedal, and then made a bracket off the side because my dad had the welding shop and all that stuff. Made the bracket, it would fit on the frame made a bracket off of that to hold the sleigh zone that pushed in the clutch. And so now I had a three-speed Corvette. Wow. And, and this is it. It's got Bruce Licks on the back. You know, my dad happened to be driving the car at a wedding, you know, and that stuff. It had Bruce Licks, and it ended up, I had the car, and I put moon discs on it. I got to know Dean Moon really well, when I put moon discs on the car. Yeah. I took the grill out, because at that time I liked the Ferrari 8 crate grill, so I had Ferrari 8 crate grill in it. You know, and it was my first hot rod. You was running it to drags at San Fernando, Until I got so many tickets I realized that I got to get out of this stuff. You know, plus I had a lot of time thinking about it because I had my license pulled. Mm. Got to understand that that was over 20 tickets to get your license pulled. Mm. Then I, you know, I just
0: I I am curious. Before we get away from it, do you remember what kind of times it ran?
1: Yeah, I got timing slips somewhere in my boxes. It ran in a 15, 16 second bracket at about 85 miles an hour.
0: With the three speed? With the three speed. And you did that conversion yourself?
1: Yeah. What had happened was in my shop, which I still own in the back room, which I kept the Buick in for quite a while and that stuff, was a place I could jack it up and get underneath it and that stuff. And when I blew the Power Glide out of it, because it didn't like you revving it up and dropping it in gear. you know. And so I had to, yeah, what a concept, right? Yeah. (laughs) It didn't like that.
0: Yeah, I bet it
1: didn't. (laughs) You know, so I jacked the car up, six cylinder, and and I pulled the power glide out, and I was going to fix this power glide. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I had this thing out, and I think I took the time to count the pieces in it. And and when I got to 400, I stopped. Mm -hmm. You know, and my dad come in, it was three o'clock in the morning. My dad come in the side door and said, what are you doing? He said, you yeah, know, well, why don't you put a stick shift in it? Hmm. You know, and that's what I ended up doing.
0: It's to, I mean, to get the geometry right of the clutch linkage and everything, that was...
1: That was easy. Really? Oh, yeah. Hydraulic, hydraulic clutches are really easy. Because you don't, no, have, to, so. yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. have any linkage. You just have a tube. Yeah. yeah, Like a brake line. You have a little tube that comes down, and then it's a matter of finding something off the side of the bell housing, which is plenty of bolts there, and make your bracket. And I had an, I had an arc welder. And a, and a and a gas welder, hmm. you know. And so you just you did it.
0: Yeah. You know. How long did you have the car?
1: I had the car until 50, 55, when I finally got the thing taken away from me. Hmm. You know. And that stuff and uh, had the problems. No, no, fifty-six. Actually, fifty-six.
0: When you say you've got it taken away from you.
1: Well, I just got too many tickets and lost my license. And my dad well, probably had an the idea they wanted to save my life because I was a crazy kid. You know, In fact, you know what? I graduated in 56. I still had it when I graduated. 57. 57 I lost the car because actually the way the story tells about that car, they found it in a used car lot in LA in 58. And somebody bought it and sat it for quite a while. And then another guy bought it and then to the ground off restoration. I'm in the process right now of trying to find the owner of that car because there are certain things I did on the bottom of that car that I would know it was the true car, you know. But everything else fits. The timeline, where it ended up being a used car lot, you know, the number three, because it was a little bit heavier fiberglass because it was what, the, what Chevrolet now calls a mule car. They made three, and that was number three of the list.
0: Probably the earliest production car that was sold to the public. I'd that
1: guess. that's why it was sold for a million dollars. It was the oldest one found. Yeah. Number three. My God. Yeah. You know? mm. But the things I did to the drive line, the things I did to hang the you know, it was something that would patch the thing but they wouldn't, you know. i I'm, I'm sure I could look at that car and get underneath it and find something I did that they would never bother, even if they took the body off and did a frame off restoration. Mm-hmm. You know. And I'm, I'm in a, I'm a, I'd like to find that out.
0: Yeah. You know? well, and I, boy, he'd like to talk to you too, whoever owns it, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he
1: would, you know, because I feel that void because they knew where it came from, but they don't have the history of it from 54 to 58. Mm. Okay? And I could supply all that.
0: Mm. You know? and, and again, it was Betty Grable?
1: Yeah, Betty Grable, you know, the lady with the million-dollar legs. Yeah. And she was married to a very famous trumpet player by the name of Harry James. Yep. You know? You know?
0: Wow, that's a fantastic story.
1: Yeah, well, not only that, but I was going to be a big band leader. I wasn't going to be a car guy. I was into music back in the high school. In fact, up here in my garage, I have a trombone which I used to play, and I was going to be another Glenn Miller. You know, I had a dance band, and I went to Notre Dame High School, and we had sock hops, and our band would play for the sock hops. And one of my a drummer went on to become Trini Lopez's drummer. You know. And that stuff, a guy named Gene Riggio. And 50s was a great time to grow up because you had all these early dance shows. Art letters, you know, was on radio and then early television, and uh, just all that stuff. The sock hops long before Dick Clark back east. You had stuff out here, you know. And it was a, it was a fantastic Hollywood was going to Gromit Chinese Theater, all that stuff, you know. And the movie studios—it was a surreal place.
0: And and hot rodding.
1: And and the home of hot rodding. Yeah. Really, the two—all the manufacturers, all the, all the, uh, what would you want to call them? All the, the pioneers, the cam grinders, you know, starting here. Esky and Angle, you know, and the guys that worked for them went on to become cam grinders later on in their careers. And uh, transmission people, Stu Hillborn. Uh, I was the first customer with my first race car motor with a 371 or a small block Chevrolet for Pete Jackson. When Pete Jackson and Ken Henley got together, they had a little building over an Eagle Rock. And I was looking for an injector for my motor I was putting together. It was a 371, which is half of a six cylinder. And uh, Phil Wyan at Wyan Manifold made a manifold for me from a four. four uh, they use a 471 manifold, he made it fit my 371 with the drive off it, with the Gilmore Drive. And so I walk in, snot-nosed kid, Pete Jackson, just opened his shop up in Eagle Rock, and basically I became their first registered customer, the endoly injector, Pete Jackson, to the day I died, had that number one invoice with my name on it. And I didn't know he made a 371, but what I found out years later was when they did a casting, they had a 671 injector that was basically, uh, had a bad casting on one end of it. Unbeknownst to me, when I come in in a 371, Pete knew that it was half of a six, and he had this casting out back that he had a customer for. Mm. You know, so he machined off the front of it, put his magic touch on it with the metering device and this stuff. He still had the four bolts that held it on. You know, and in my early drag racing cars, you see that 371 injector sitting on top of that 371. And that was my first dragster. You know, my partner was Don Gatty, who owned the dragster, which was another, getting back to the Road King guys. You know, but what started all that was getting to be a member of the Road Kings and going to work for Tommy Ivo. You know, he was a guy that had the premier car back then, that Buick dragster. And he was Mr. Showman. And so if I worked really hard polishing his car and helping him put the motor again, washing parts, and that stuff. He'd take me to the races. You know. And then finally, when I got my own motor together and partnered up with Ed Janky, not Janky, but for Don Gady, my partner, and that stuff, the guy who took my spot to be Ivo's grunt was a guy named Don Perdone. He was his dad's painter at his dad's auto body shop in Van Ice on Oxnard Boulevard. you know. And he was talking about how he fell in love with the thing because he took a ride in a club dragster. Our car club had so many race cars and stuff, we even had a club car that had a carbureted Chrysler in it. And it was kept at Rod Pettmiller's house and if you had your car broken, you could go to the drag races with the club car. And Perdone had a ride in a club car and that's when it, what he tells the story now was, that turned it on for him and he wanted a dragster, he didn't want a roadster. You know, so all those little two degrees of separation and all that great little timing and stuff started all that I call the second generation of drag racers, the, yeah. you know, because the first generation were the guys who had to make their own stuff and came out of the Second World War and El Mirage in the 30s and made it all happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's break down some of that, because that's an amazing bit of, uh,
1: the golden age? of
0: history that you just Went through.
1: The golden age of drag racing. Yeah. Guys like C.J. Hart. Yeah. St. Anna Drag Strip. Yeah. He had the idea of getting kids off the street, and he talked somebody in some city to use something that they didn't use as a place to get the kids off the street, and he organized that. Yeah. You know, what a concept.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, yeah. and that's really started. That guy is the guy that should be up, you know, in that ivory tower somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know? Then you had guys like Wally Parts who came out here from the East Coast and that stuff and started working with Robert Peterson in Hot Rod Magazine. That was 1956, 57? No, 46, 47. Mm-hmm. You know? I remember meeting him at an armory over in Glendale over here at a car show and he was hawking the magazines out front for a quarter. You know? to give the publication. So that brought in advertisers and advertisers. Who were the first sponsors of race cars back in those days? Speed shops. Today it's corporations. Back then it was speed shops because every little town had a local speed shop, which basically was a muffler shop. They put mufflers on cars and they sold manifolds and they found they could make some money selling carburetors and air cleaners and stuff to tweak your cars up. Even Brody knobs some speed shops that sell a Brody now. A lot of people don't know what that was. Something that made it easy, yeah. so you had your arm over the girl. That's you right. could now steal your car with a Brody knob, and she did the shifting for you. Yeah. You
0: know.
1: My my dad called it a necker knob. Yeah, the necker yeah, knob. No. Yeah, necker no. knob, right? Yeah. But if you if you paid time necking with your girl when you were driving, you didn't have you know you didn't <laughs> didn't do that very often. Yeah, yeah. You know, we call it a Brody knob because it helped you go around a corner faster. No, there you go. You know. I um,
0: well, I guess I meant more specifically your story, uh, just because you just compacted a lot into, uh, in just okay, you know, well I know, got, a, a short paragraph, yeah. but I'm curious like, obviously that Corvette was your yeah. first hot rod. Right. But when you, pre driving age, was there stuff going on around where there got, did you see roadsters and hot rods around that just got you fired up even before you no, even No.
1: No. Well, the motor stuff was, my dad built his own motors for his boats, so I did a lot of that, changing boats. And at our shop, we, I still had the chain horse sitting in the same exact spot of an area that so many times we put motors in his boats. That stuff. Flatheads, small block Chevrolets, and then my brother got into boating with, with uh, uh, ski boats, and he went on to become a marathon skier and that stuff. So the place still had changing motors out of boats even to the point we had a twin-engine boat, but that was later on. But basically, it all was the mechanical end of it and that, and then the Corvette, and then the Road Kings Car Club, and then working for Tommy Ivo, and so many tickets. I didn't. I realized that even back then that you just couldn't do that anymore because when your car was broke, you couldn't go out on a date. So I needed a car that looked good that you can go out on a date with and a car that you race with. They covered all the bases and that stuff. So you made your own trailer, and you worked on your own car, and you'd go to the drag races. And back then we had four or five great drag strips. We had Lions Drag Strip right here in the valley. We had San Fernando, that was a, a great place to go and drag race and, and get your get your competitive spirit, you know, kind of satisfied, mm-hmm. you know. And I found that the, it was a much better deal with the motor sitting out in front of you, mm-hmm. you know. And driving.
0: Now, when you joined, so you had the Corvette when you were in high school. Yeah, is that correct. And yeah, was that when you joined the road games?
1: No, because basically, when that car got taken away from me in '57, and that uh, my next car was a, a, a hand-me-down from my brother, a '53, a '56 uh, Chevrolet Bel Air convertible, uh, which basically my dad and I had an argument. I moved out, rented a room above a garage for eight bucks a week. Sold the car, because I needed money, and bought myself a 50 Ford business coupe with a flathead six cylinder in it. You used to go to El Mirage. Uh, I had a, a friend of mine who used to run a belly tank at El Mirage. And I couldn't dra- drag race to Ford, because it was my transportation. You didn't have any money in that. And I got more involved with Tommy Ivo and Don Perdone. And we were initiated in the Road Kings together in 58. You know, me and Perdon were initiated together, Mm -hmm. and by that time my dad and I kind of like got back together and so then I bought a 58 Impala, three on the tree with a Tri-Power, you know, green and that, but I never moved back in the house. I still stayed out there living in this room above a garage, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was, uh, what, 18 years old.
0: When you had the Corvette in high school, were you Did you frequent Bob's Big
1: Boy? Oh, all the time. That was a place to go on a Friday night.
0: Yeah, tell me about what that was like. You're you're in high school, you've got this 53 Corvette that's kind of hopped up and you're coming
1: out of Bob's Big Boy. Well, again, today they've resurrected the deal without the car service. On a Friday night in that place, the line to get in the car service would go out and around the parking lot and out the front of the building down two blocks east to a place called Pass Avenue and down Pass Avenue at least a half a mile. It was that place because that was a place to be. It became a a social event, Mm -hmm. especially car service. And the best place to get would be right where they come in and be the last car waiting for some place to open up for car service. So if you got that premier spot, you had conversation with every car and everybody coming in there. And so people had all their custom cars, their chopped cars, their coupes, all the stuff. Austin Healy's, MG Midgets, all the stuff, and everybody's... Well, as my wife framed, America's love of the automobile, you know, was our egos. The car was our ego, you know. And it, everybody had a different approach to that mm-hmm. you know it was it was an incredible place to go back to you know places uh, uh, like um, uh, there's been some movies out in the past and that stuff uh, that talk about that whole deal that was the hangout that was a place where you had uh, you Want to go racing with somebody, you pick a place to go race, and you go meet, and you go drag race someplace on a street that was unpopulated, hopefully, and that stuff. And then you, sometimes it got to be such a big event that the police would come and roust you all out. Then later on, there was a story written about uh, in a magazine about under the Sixth Street Bridge. There was a flood control, and there was a f- movie uh, made called uh, They Came or something. It was about giant ants. That was done in the LA River down underneath the 6th Street Bridge. It had its own lighting. The walls of the river were angled so it was made of instant grandstands. Mm-hmm. And there was no water on it. It was all covered into the culvert. We could get in under the 7th Street Bridge and drag race underneath there a full quarter of a mile with starters and the whole shop. And the cops couldn't bother us because that was LA uh, flood control, which didn't have any jurisdiction with the police department. Okay? And, was, yeah. and on Thursday nights, that's where you go to race.
0: This is the first time I've heard that part of it. Really? It's a really important part of that. Because I've always wondered, how could, that, how could that many kids congregate and not have the cops on them every single time?
1: Right. Well, a guy named Pat Goodall did a story years ago with *Riders Journal. Mm-hmm. You know, And you can read the story in the past. issues of a Journal. And I helped him write the story and where it all came about and some of the early pictures and that. You know of that event, and it was really a big event in Southern California, simply because it got the kids off the street. You know, and it made it a fairly safe place. And even my one of my first guys I helped with a dragster, and that stuff, uh, was over when I was in the Air National Guard over in Atwater, had an early dragster, and the thing caught on fire. He carburetors, and the guy. Well, anyways, we caught on fire about halfway down and all he did was he drove it down into this water that was channeled in. It was about six inches of water, and he'd splashed the water and put the fire out. Mm. You know? So you had your own ways of safety devices because nobody could have got to a fire extinguisher to that guy. There was no ambulance down there. We're just guys getting together and then you'd look up on the sixth street bridge and you see the police officers up there watching us, but they couldn't do nothing about it. You know? Mm.
0: And that was your place to street race?
1: Yeah, that was a place that we found a safe place to street race. Instead of going to the River Road or setting to go way out in the West Valley and that stuff where there's paved streets with just farmlands around, mm-hmm. you know, that was the best place to go. And you had lights because on on one side was all the trains where all the trains were all put together, all the box cars were all put together. So it was a noisy place too so they had no spectators and nobody in the houses. Worrying about the noise we were making. So you could uncork your cars, you know, mm-hmm. and you had the stands where your girlfriend can sit up on the stands and still see because, mm-hmm. you know, although it was concrete, you know, yes. it, it wasn't a straight wall like a flood control. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was a great period of time too, and that lasted about two years. Hmm.
0: You so know? What years do you think those would have been? Those were in
1: 58 to
0: 60.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know?
0: Now going to Bob's big boy as a kid. Is that how you met Ivo initially? Maybe.
1: No, I met Ivo basically. You know, just around in his around in his area and that stuff. Walked in his garage. Mm. You know, when he had his dragster, and he he was the guy to go talk about and see. Mm. You know.
0: So was was it a little before your time that he would have been street racing his T bucket? His powered T bucket?
1: Yes, his T bucket. You'd be street racing that. Yeah. You know, we had a, had a lot of fun in that car.
0: Oh, so you were around that when it, when it yes. was his street car.
1: Yeah, when it was the street car and that stuff. One time, in fact, there was, I forget the name of that movie that talked about uh, the days of hanging out in drive-ins and that stuff, where they policed, the guy tied a chain to the police officer's axle. Oh, American Graffiti. Well, me and Ivo did that. <laughs> we did that actual thing. We had an officer that would go nameless at the time used to sit across the street from Bob's and he would pull you over for any violation. A, a light bulb off on your, on your license plate, he'd pull you over. And so one day we got this idea because there was a gas station across from Bob's. It was a signal gas station. When was the last time you heard that? You know? And a guy named Johnny Shields held on the, off, the gas station. It was closed of course and the officer would stand, sit there in his car and I climbed underneath it with a rope and I tied the rope off to a post that was protecting the coke machine on the side of the building and it had about only about seven or eight feet of its thing it wasn't a chain and I slid out from underneath and me and you know run back and we went down the street and we went rowing by him you know in the Ivo's tea bucket and that stuff and the guys across the street knew what was going on seeing the officers fire the car up and start to head off and he just Put a big stop on him and he was up against him and he broke the steering wheel. Oh my God. You know, of the car type of thing. You know? Wow. <laughs> crazy stuff. Crazy, crazy stuff, you know? And I knew where all the back streets were getting back to that racing thing where I had to get rid of the car and get rid of my drag race and get into professional drag racing off the street. I had the 53 Corvette. It was bombing around town and all of a sudden the cop was chasing me. And I knew a specific alleyway that looked like a guy's driveway. And so I had a head start on the guy. And I pulled down this driveway, which ended up being a alley, through the next street, turned my lights off, and went away. Okay. Weeks later, the guy pulled me over, says, next time I'll shoot at you. And that put the fear of God in me, You know, type of deal. And I realized I had to do something. And yeah. so did my dad, you know. And so it all evolved into race cars and drag racing. Had a great place growing up, Tommy Ivo, helping there, teaching me how to put motors together correctly, you know. And he got his start with the Buick Motor with a guy named Max Balchowski, old Yeller fame, yeah. you know, and all that kind of stuff's so all well-documented. And it was a, you know, it was a, you know, and so my first race car, with Don Gatie who went on to become with the Sour Sisters, Radican Jackson, and no, I'm sorry, Radican Safford and Gatie the Sour Sisters, also Bill car. I just talked to Don about a month ago up in Oregon. Mm. So it was, a, again that same period of time of drag racing where everything was changing quickly. Mm-hmm. You know. You
0: know, we made it. I think we made it up to where you had a 54. Sedan
1: yeah, Sedan a six-cylinder. Then it, then my, my... And then you
0: had your 58 Chevy. Yeah. Um, this must be when you have the 58 Chevy, around the time when you're about to start getting serious about drag racing in my career. That's right, that's right. So when, let's pick it up there.
1: Well, that's when I, I was crewing for Ivo. So that's, that,
0: that was your first yeah. foray into yeah. the drag, drag racing world was as a yeah. crew member on Tommy on, Tommy
1: car. Ivo's car. Exactly, we talked about, and then put together my first motor. And Don Gatty bought a dragster, built was a number one dragster built by Rod Pet Miller, who went on to work for Tommy Ivo's chassis company. You know, Rod's still around. He built Kenny Safford's car. You know, in the early 60s and that stuff, the Oldsmobile powered rail, and uh, that car morphed into and Don Don would always drive the car the first race at the race. He'd take a first pass. Well. He crashed the car at San Fernando, and that same day, Ed Jankeys blew the motor up in his number three Fuller car. So I teamed up with Ed Janke, put my motor in his car, and that gave me a real contending double-B gas dragster, you know, that it really became something where I could work on the motor. I blew up the small block Chevrolet with a 371. In my next motor, I put a 671 with an endoly injector and then started running all the tracks and started owning the double-B gas dragster records. The car was running in the 10 seconds, low tens, high nines, at 165 miles an hour, which was a record I had most places. Yeah. Double-B gas dragster it was a it Was a 327 cubic inch motor with a 60 it Was 333 cubic inches, with a 671 NL injectors, Ingle cam, you yeah. know, you built your own engines? Yeah. Yeah. Built my own engines, two of my own stuff. and stuff. Then Kenny used to come to the races with me, Kenny Safford, and that. And I would always let him make the first pass in the car. Then I'd drive the car for competition. You know, and then he went on to do the the whole stuff with the sour Sisters and Oldsmobiles and that stuff. A club member Road Kings. You know, pretty famous club. Mm-hmm. You know, at one time we had twenty-eight race cars in the club. From a four banger, actually a Crosley four banger, to a, a Model A four banger with own angle, to injected Chevrolets. We even had the club car. We had fuel roadsters, the Cedarquist Brothers. We had modified roadsters with, with six carburetors on a Jimmy, with, with a guy named Spider Hanley, you know, used to have with a roadster, to Tommy Ivo's car, you know, uh, Roy Fiesta, who went on to become a, a a chassis builder, and also holding records at Bonneville had a coupe, you know, with a blown Chrysler in it. We had a lot of race cars, mm. you know, you know. And Perdon, Tommy built a two motor car, and Perdon bought his single engine car. Tommy put it on time, a dollar a week and whatever, mm. you know. So it was, a, it was a, it was a. When we went to the races as a club, we would dominate a lot of classes with not one car in each class, but a couple cars in each class, mm. you know, mm. type of thing. So it was, it, was a, it was an incredible time and period of history now. And then with my car and that stuff at Lions Drag Strip, I got to know Mickey Thompson and Judy Thompson and all the girls in the tower, you know. It was a, it was a, a fun place to be, getting invited to those people's parties, you know. I was a single guy, bachelor, a lot of guys I knew that race cars were getting married and having kids and that stuff. It was a great time I bet. You know, yeah yeah, <laughs> incredible you know yeah. you you couldn't you couldn't well you could probably make a movie about it a little bit if you can capture some films but uh i always i always thought it would be a great you know to have all today, not to diverse from the story, but for a minute to have a they have all these uh, TV programs about life. Nobody's ever done one about a drag racing crew going on tour, mm. or going to like today to to go day in day out with a filming crew of all the things that happen with the crews, getting to the racetrack, the people they meet, the the stuff they've got to do, the hotels. That's a whole complete story in itself with all these characters, mm-hmm. all these people who. Uh, six months ago didn't know each other and now they're working on race cars together yeah. where if somebody you make a mistake you might hurt somebody mm-hmm. you know what i mean back in my day it was one guy as a crew member and the guy that owned the car and, whatever, and you'd go in and if you needed the third person you would pull somebody out of the crowd to drive the push car mm-hmm. you know yeah i mean it was an amazing time you know but then anyways to get into back into my deal I, I uh, we had a match race for the glass slipper up at Half Moon Bay with a double B gas dragster. That was, the, that was the double B gas car up in Half Moon Bay, San Francisco area. And I was at Fontana and I broke my motor. I broke the snout off my motor. and So I didn't have a motor that I could put together for the following week. Well there happened to be a guy named John Peters there who was part owner in a Quincy Automotive car that later became the freight train. and. He, saw my predicament, he knew me because he worked at Angle Cams, he said he'd loan me his motor. So I went to to uh, Santa Monica and he loaned me the front motor out of the Quincy Automotive Twin Engine Dragster. Went up to Half Moon Bay, that was a a Hillborn injected motor so I had to learn how to do that. And we raced them up there two out of three and basically came back and uh, won the race and when I took the car, the motor back to him, he asked me if I wanted to drive that race car. And I jumped at the chance. Because the Quincy Automotive twin-engine dragster, the Peterson Frank twin-engine dragster, that was the car to drive. That held all the speed records, how the ET records. If you came across that car last round, you were lucky to get that far. You know. And then when he hired me to drive that car, That was my beginning of true big-time drag racing, Hmm. you know.
0: Now, this is kind of a leading question, but how did your parents feel about this drag racing business?
1: At that time, they had no problem with it, you know. My dad was very well forward to a point and that stuff. And when I got to ride in a Quinch automotive car in 61, uh, no, 60, yeah, 61. Uh, Basically, it took me a while to learn how to race a car because I had a handling difficulty with the front end, the way the front end worked. They call it bump steering, but that's another deal. And so we did pretty well, did really well in that stuff. We got to use the car, uh, and so we go to Bakersfield March of 62, and we win the event, you know, which was winning Bakersfield back then was like winning Indianapolis. Fuel and Gas Championship, and it just happened that that same weekend My good friend Don Perdone, who was then driving a Top Fuel car that he owned with Dave Zuschel's motor, won Top Fuel. So two Road King guys win the premier event on the same day. You know, we did a lot of partying that night, you know, Road Kings were up there and that stuff. And it happened to be my 24th birthday, March 10th of 1962. So as I come home and tell my dad the whole deal and that stuff, he then asked me to make a change. A choice, and he asked me. He said, "You can work in my business, and become an owner, if you, if you want to become an owner, you got to stop driving. If you want to work here and keep driving, that's fine. You know. So I had to make a choice. So June of '62, I retired from drag racing. But I still crewed on the car. The first guy to get in the car was a guy named Craig Breedlove." who Nye Frank and John Peters was building their jet motor for the first guy to go 500 and 600 miles an hour at Bonneville. And he couldn't handle the car. Plus, he had a lot of things going on with Shell and Goodyear, and he didn't want to ruin his, his chances at his dream of land speed records. The next guy in the car was a guy named Tom McEwen, who was an Engel car guy and also worked for uh, worked, uh, Engel cam guy and knew Gene Adams and driving Gene Adams' car and that stuff. And he couldn't handle the car. And then the next guy in the car who ran a drag strip was Mickey Thompson. because The problem with the car was you had a handling problem when you let the clutch out, which you had to do certain things at the right time, or else the car would make darting move back and forth. And if you finally got it going at the other end, you had to do the right thing when you took your foot off the pedal, or else the car would make a hard left turn at speed. The last guy was a guy named Bill Alexander, he used to drive for Ernie Shuttlebug, and uh, and uh, drove the car, and drove actually for Jimmy Persett, Top Fuel, and went on to become a nostalgia Top Fuel dragster driver in the 90s. And, well, he got in the car, and I was trying to teach him how to drive this car. And it was December of 62. Now, we're six months into this program. And one day, one night, that night, he said, you know, Bob, They've made so many changes in the car, you couldn't drive the car. That was sort of a dare to me. And I didn't think about it until about three or four years ago. That really, that dare started my career again. Because he hit in the car, I got in using his gear, got to the starting line, did my typical three clean outs of the motor, loaded the clutch, And I was supposed to make a nice easy pass, kind of slid the clutch out, did that automatic pilot deal because I knew what the car was going to do. Slid on down there, you know, late at night at the beach when the fog was starting to roll in. It was a, a surreal place. I mean, you had to be there. The fog coming in, the mist. Car set a new speed record. Nice easy pass, right? I was a smoker at that time and so out of my pocket I took my cigarettes and I lit the cigarette off the glowing disc brake because the disc brakes would get glowing red hot. So I'm sitting down there a half a mile away from the starting line. You got the parachute in the seat. I'm smoking my cigarette, you know, sitting on a tire. And all I could hear would be I could hear this roar, and an announcer saying something, and OK? So finally, John and I and everybody comes with the push car down. And they start stuffing rags in the exhaust pipes and that stuff. I said, well, how'd it go? It felt good and that stuff. And nobody was saying nothing, you know. And especially Bill Alexander. He'd come out of the car, and he didn't say a word. And I said, well, what, it felt good to me. What did it do? And then they told me it just set a new speed record, 185 miles an hour. We bumped the record we had owned up about four miles an hour, you know. And the car hadn't been in competition for almost six full months. And then they were going to go home and cut it up and go somewhere else, because nobody could drive it. And I knew all the photographers, and I knew Doris at Drag News, because that was the Bible at the time, Drag News magazine. And so I went to these people. and I said, no, nah, no, nah, let me, you know, I don't want to not do this. So basically, I went to all my photographer buddies and told them, you know, you can't take a picture of me with my face mask off. And I went to Doris, and she promised not to, not to publish any picture that might come across the board and that stuff. And so basically, we go to the races. And that stuff. So then, shortly after that, was the Winter Nationals. So we go to the Winter Nationals, and we register the driver of the car as John Peters, who was one of the owners of the car. And no qualifying back then. You had top gas, you had double A gas dragster, you had A gas dragster, and whoever came in the door, they would all be paired up, and you'd race. And in Sunday racing and that stuff, you'd race until you got down to two last cars. A double A gas dragster, which we were part of, and an A gas dragster, which was Mickey Thompson's Pontiac Hemi car. But in the meantime, I suited up in the push car, making sure nobody had a camera on me, and got in the car. Okay? And in going back to the pits, my roommate, Rex Slinkard, would be in his seat pushing the car back, so there'd be nobody picking pictures of me. The picture off to my left over here shows the winning of that '63 Winter Nationals with Rex taking the trophy. And actually, there's other pictures of Rex kissing the trophy girl. He has my fire, actually my leather jacket on, and we're sitting there laughing, you know, about the whole deal.
0: I hope he at least bought
1: you a beer. Uh, no, I didn't drink back then.
0: Okay.
1: You know, I always found that having a beer the night before didn't make you a good driver. Yeah. So whenever we were at the bar after the races, I'd make sure my competition had a couple of beers. There you go. You know. There you go. You know. I really, I didn't. In fact, I didn't like to taste the beer at the time. You know. But it was, you know, whatever, whatever that excuse was, type of deal. But then, so we raced there, and then finally, we raced Mickey Thompson's car for the number one spot in drag racing. At Lions Drag Strip, two out of three and we beat them. So we became number one in the nation in top gas with a Mr. Eliminator list that Doris Herbert had. Pete Robinson had won Indy a year before and he wanted to have the number one spot in his possession. So whoever whoever owned the spot you were at, you had to challenge them and they had 30 days to accept your challenge and designate a place. If they didn't, you got the spot. So we booked it at San Gabriel. Pete Robinson challenged us. I went to, we went to San Gabriel Drag Strip, where Steve Gibbs was working in a tower writing stories. Mel Reck was the announcer, and the Tice brothers owned the drag strip. And this is before they sold the drag strip to the owner of In N Out Burgers. The Snyder family. I think it was Snyder's? I think it was The Snyders. You know, they had their place in Belt uh, right there off the 10 Freeway, the very first one, and they owned the drag strip over there in San Gabriel Valley. But anyway, so we got $1,000 for that race, which back then was more than a top fuel. And Pete Robinson got nothing. So it came out, and as I'm pushing down for the first round of this elimination book, and the place is packed with people and that stuff, Mel puts a mic on, and he comes here comes Bob, and he clicks it off, turns around in there, and says, we gotta give this guy his own name. So Steve said, Something Lippincott. Mel said Floyd Lippincott Jr., and that went off the PA system. And that name stuck. Okay? Even. They
0: just grabbed it out of thin air.
1: Out of thin air. Turned out when I talked to Steve later, because he went to Mount SAC, there was a professor named Lippincott that was one of his teachers there mm-hmm. at Mount SAC, where he was doing journalism and that kind of thing. And he went on, of course. Steve Gibbs went on to become competition director for NHRA. And, uh, you know, and he, there's legends written about that guy. you know. But anyways, they, those two guys came up with that name at that particular instant. And then a couple months later, the Quincy Automotive car, the Peters and Frank car, got named the freight train when we used to run at Fontana. Fontana at that time was run by Mickey and Judy Thompson. And Fontana was out in the desert, had very dry air, and the drag strip was, had three bumps in the lights. And top gas cars, when you load them down, they would start to detonate, especially the train. And Judy used to write all the stories of that. Well, when one day we were there racing uh, in the daytime. The car would go through these bumps. And when it would load the thing down, it would put out a big puff of black smoke. And then it would free up as it come off the bump and then another bump. So it would put three distinct puffs of black smoke and Judy said, you know, that looks like a freight train pulling the grade. So Beverly Peters, and, who was John's wife, and, and Judy knew each other. So that's when they came up with the theme of running the bib overalls and the engineer hat and the kerchiefs. And John made a, a cow catcher off the front of the car, you know, and repainted the car red and did the artwork on the cowling and that stuff. And that was really the first theme famous car. Became extremely popular because every kid loves a train, mm-hmm. right? Especially a freight train with two smokestacks, you know. So it was ironic that 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 two two three months in history of drag racing, you know, I get a name, uh, you know, of drag racing's biggest put on, and John gets they get the car train, freight train, and that and that's this picture right here, the restored train here, mm-hmm. you know but history of drag racing. So then we started, uh, didn't do any touring and that stuff, but Lippincott got more famous than Bob Moravis, won more races, you know. Was in Bristol, Tennessee one time and with Wide World of Sports and that was a big issue. Getting back to my mom and dad not knowing I was driving that stuff, that particular race ended up being the end of Lippincott. Because when I got televised on that show, I had to steal my dad's television out of his boat so that he wouldn't see on Wide World of Sports. And shortly after that, we had won Orange County opening race and somebody took a picture of me in my bib overalls and it was in the number one program of Orange County. And when my dad was going through the divorce with my mother in 68, he was at the Elks Club talking about his divorce and a friend of his said well you know your son's been driving all these years and my dad said now he hasn't been so the guy goes home gets the program gives it to my dad my dad comes into the shop the next day with me and my brother running the Maytag shop and hands me the program and tells me he's no more I'm no more son of his I've been lying to him and then told my brother he wants the business back and my brother said no And so he disowned both of us at the same time. You know, and never talked to either one of us ever again. Ever. You know, so that's, he didn't like it. Now my mother, you know, she basically didn't mind me racing. And so when she got hooked up with my stepfather and that stuff, she would go to the races with me. And we won a big race at Irwindale called the Grand Prix in 69. And John and Beth Peters gave my mother that trophy that she kept by her front door to the day she died. She was very proud of my driving. Mm. You know. Mm. But no. that mm. six, seven years of racing with Lippincott, you know, he won more races, red lighted a few more times, but you know, won more races than I did.
0: And what is this, what's the story about the NHRA license?
1: Well, 1966, I have an have an actual license given to me, signed by Wally Parks, an unlimited driving license for NHRI to drive anything, because you remember back in the 60s too, I was driving not only the twin engine car but I was driving the top fuel cars too, the Tony Sandoval's car, uh, I drove the Don John the Beachcomber Johnson's car when the last Mickey Thompson meet, you know in '66, you know. 117 top fuel cars, you know, seven rounds eliminations, you know, all in one night. Wow. What a program! Wow. Yeah, well I was right, you know. Then the U.D.R.A. meet in '67 with the train, you know, 64 car show, top gas, you know, six rounds eliminations, round, low et, top time every event, M and H tires. 200 miles an hour in a gas car. It's incredible. You know, all that stuff, all just, and if your car, if somebody came up with a new car, you know, and they beat everybody, you'd go home, throw your car away, and build a new car. You know, if the motor was at, at a 90 degree rake, and yours were at a 40 degree rake, you went home and you made a 90 degree rake mm-hmm. in your motor. So you look at all those periods of cars, you should sort of date the cars by the way the motor set, they got into moving the car, the motor in and out of the chassis, farther out, farther in, you know, for better traction. You know, mm-hmm. everything was changing quickly. You know, safety-wise and mechanically. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: But now this NHRA license, whose name was that? Floyd Levinson Jr. Yeah, I was going to say.
1: Yeah, with no picture on it. Yeah. You know?
0: So Wally was cool with that. Oh,
1: Wally, Bonnie, Bernie Parch, Partridge. Bernie Partridge was a div seven director. He's the one who called the shots in this division. You know, we were, we went on to, we really promoted that NHRA racing, and the division races and that stuff, we go to Indian and we go to Salt Lake City for a division race there with the car. You know. We go to Carlsbad. We would go anywhere there was a division race. We would go. We supported NHRA, you know, and the car was a popular car, mm-hmm. you know, type of thing. So I was just one of those guys. They just dealt with it, mm. you know, and I dealt with it. Just make sure my picture wasn't taken. Yeah. And then when their super track opened up, Orange County Raceway, that big beautiful tower, you know, an opening night at that place. My God, that was that was an incredible place. I mean, you're you're talking going from a, a dirt pits, a lot of drag strips, to this professional place that with a big professional tower and lights and guardrails and and staging lanes and you know, I mean, it was like comparing a an, an MG to a Rolls Royce, you know great time to grow up. Yeah. A lot of innovations. I'd say so. Yeah.
0: Um, And take us into like the the next chapter. Like when when did you start feeling like, well what, you tell me, what what was it like when you decided I, I think maybe I've had enough of this?
1: I never did that. We had a change of rules that at the time we thought we were being discriminated against. I was driving the train. Uh, basically, top gas was being eliminated. IHRA, sanctioning body, eliminated the class in 1970. NHRA ran it one more year, 1972, top gas. Everything because of the tire situation in 67, where the m coming out with a tire and when you went from smoking the tires to no smoke, then the train really was able to run leap-bounds ahead of everybody else in top gas, even to the point where the competition tried to ban us. You know, because we had a tire that the top fuel guys were using and we were using. In fact, at Indianapolis in 67, I qualified third in a top fuel show. Top gas was running 770s, 780s at 190 miles an hour. The train was running 730s at 205 miles an hour. I can remember qualifying at Indy September of 67 alongside at BB and Mulligan, and we beat him in a top fuel. We were qualified third in top fuel show with a 731, 205 miles an hour. Okay. They had heard about us on the, on the East Coast, you know, and I can remember pulling to the starting line in the train, And looking over to the staging, and everybody was announcing, must have been doing something, because Bernie Parker was the announcer back then. They were running over to see the freight train, who was all of a sudden a 200-mile-an-hour gas car was coming to the starting line. And we knocked off of you know, 31, 731, you know. Had a little motor problem in final round, and didn't win. But that's history, you know. But that whole thing evolved, the tire thing evolved into... Now everybody could see they could put a twin-engine car together. So all of a sudden in top gas, you uh, didn't have two or three twin-engine cars. You had 30 of them. 35. The guys in Tennessee were putting two guys with two Chrysler gas cars. Say, said, well, let's put, let's team up. Franks and Funk. They were top fuel guys, but they had first started with two blown Chryslers and a gas car. They came out of the hills of Kentucky running 200 miles an hour and they couldn't hit their with a barn door. You know, they all of a sudden, because of the tire. In top gas, and in production-wise, people were looking at top fuel going much faster because now they had a tire. Now they made the leap into the 230, 240 bracket, running into the six-second bracket. And top gas cars were the same class, didn't make as much noise, didn't go as fast. In a drag racing needed to get professional. And Wally was a good friend of mine, and years later on, he explained the situation to me, and I understood that. So then you had funny cars starting to take hold, top fuel, and then they brought pro stock in for that professional. And everybody else was sportsmen, which means top gas was sportsmen, which would be handicap racing. Mm. 1972, the new rules come out. Well no, thank you, thank you very much. So John and I just washed our hands of it, and we walked away, Mm. you know, type of thing.
0: You never had an interest in running another, a different class? No,
1: I I didn't have. I put all my eggs in that basket with a car. I kind of like had a real bad feeling in my mouth because of the sanctioning bodies and that stuff, limited class that I was a kick-ass guy in at the time, you know. And John was upset about it because just was was So he went away and I chose to do the same thing. You know, shortly afterwards, you know, I bought it. I bought the house we're in now in 72. I did a little road racing stuff with some friends of mine who had road racing cars. I didn't like that. You know what I mean? Um, it wasn't really safe. And I just kind of like washed my head. I became a very lousy spectator. You know, so I didn't spectate. And I just had a I had a bad feeling in my mouth. And then I met my wife in 74 and got married. And so we did that, you know. Did a little boat racing with my brother. You know, he was a marathon skier. You know, and so I became the boat driver of a twin-engine Campbell car, a Campbell boat that ran 120 miles an hour, the skier on the back. You know, a 20-foot boat with two big block Chevrolets that I built at Ed Pink's shop, put out a. The boat put out about 1,200 horsepower with two carbureted big blocks in it, Mm. you know. And that that satisfied my need for speed, Mm -hmm. you know. Then got married and started doing that, Mm -hmm. you know. Then in the 80s, I uh, rented a building to a a, a super cart, uh, 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 go karts with motorcycle motors in them. And so I started to do that since I was the landlord of a guy who was importing these cars from Europe. They looked like miniature Indy cars with little wings on them, and they had shifters. Where you, instead of sitting there with a clutch, you had a shifter so you could shift it. You didn't have any suspension, you're low on the ground, and things. We're running 150 miles an hour down the back straightaway at Riverside Drive, Riverside Raceway, Laguna Seca. So it became a drag race out of every corner, and boy, did I have fun at that! And my kids liked it too, yeah. you know. You know,
0: very fun racing.
1: Very fun racing. Very simple racing. You know, once you invested in the in a cart and that stuff, the only tire bill you had was a tire bill. Mm-hmm. You know, we went to Sears Point, went to Laguna Seca, went to, you know, all these different race tracks around here that were pretty famous race tracks. And the nice thing about it, a zip cart or a cart on the on the, that kind of a road race track, unlike big cars where you only have one car through the turns and that stuff and only straightaways and that. These things could go freewide wide around corners, because the corners were built for big cars, like especially Riverside, built for stock cars. You know, going into turn nine after 150 miles an hour with three guys alongside of you and that stuff and coming out of the turn and doing the S's, going up through one and two, shifting your gears, and the guys right alongside you drafting you and pulling around, awesome fun, awesome fun. You talk about getting your veins hard, you know, just like drag racing, I bet. you know, type I bet. of thing and that uh, happened for a while and then the kids got a little older and got more distractions and that stuff and had to do the the kid deal and kind of pulled away from that didn't too much too much drag racing and that um started and then in 92 they just started to have a, the hot rod reunion the very first one Steve Gibbs and the Wally Parks Museum decided to have uh of an event because all these old timers, all these first generation drag racers and and business people were starting to we started to lose them, you know. Started going to that big drag race in the sky kind of stuff, and so they decided to have one every couple of years, maybe every five years. They had this get together, so they had their very first one. And John and Beth Peters come down from the Clear Lake where they had a business making uh, engines for boats, and we got so enthralled about the whole deal, and that was November of 60, 2000, no, I'm sorry, 1992, that he still had the freight train at home, the frame. And because Beverly told him, he said, you get rid of the frame and you get rid of me. So John, when he left Santa Monica and moved up to Clear Lake to run an engine shop business, he kept the frame and the side panels and the body, but sold everything else off. Mm -hmm. So he got so Excited about that whole deal, said, "Well, let's resurrect this car." So, for the Winter Nationals, because the '93 would have been the 30th anniversary of us winning the Winter Nationals, so I was on board with the whole deal. So, John pulled a lot of strings, spent a lot of money, and resurrected the Freight Train original frame. You know, from the last car, which is you know the picture here above me, and brought that car back to life and we were booked in to the Winter National. So I got my, uh, had to have a license for a pilot license, had my physical and that stuff, and we go to Bakersfield to test the car and had, and had to get signed off. So Bernie, Ken, Kenny Bernstein and Ace McCulloch were the two guys that signed me off on a license. I had to go up and make a short burnout, you know, and then come make another half pass. And I had to make three passes to get qualified in the car but I couldn't run a full quarter of a mile because it didn't have the late model framework on it. So they allowed me to do that. So we literally you know, resurrected the car and that really brought me back into wanting to go drag racing again, You know, type of thing. So we did the campaign in the car that year. We ran it four times. We did it at Sears Point, did it at Sacramento Raceway and back for the World's Finals or back for the Hot Rod Reunion in 93. You know, and then the car became a museum piece, didn't get run anymore. But that really whetted my appetite. And so I put the word out that I would, would like to maybe do a nostalgia tough fuel car. Well, that chance came in 2000, when Pete Sterrett, Pit Crew Pete, used to be with Caramacini's, had a friend of his that he knew up in San Francisco, then into San Diego, a guy named John Halstead, had a hoist company, was looking for a driver. Because he got back into drag racing with a nostalgia top fuel car, so what was that? What's the it, September? Is it Labor Day? September yeah. of 2000. Uh, he was invited him down to his house to talk to him uh, about driving his car, and he hired me to drive the car. He had no crew, and I put a crew together, and we started running in 2000. So the no, it was, in fact, you know what it was. It wasn't that, it was Fourth of July weekend that I went down to see John and Jeannie down in, in San Diego. And they hired me. And then so we put the thing together and I was able to get licensed at the Hot Rod Reunion uh, in November, October of, of of 2000. And I got licensed. Now it was such a funny deal too because I put this crew together of some people who worked with, uh, uh, one of the my bottom end guy was a guy that used to work for Cruise Petrogun in the early '90s. Real good bottom end guy, keeping the bottom end alive. Uh, my crew chief was a guy named Chris Nance, who was running at the time a big car show at the Sand Drags, you know, which was the late model stuff at only 300 feet with sand paddles and that stuff. He lived in Burbank. Uh, Dusty McWilliams was another guy I put together. So the four of us went down to San Diego and we put this car together and worked all the bugs out of it with manifold issues and the whole shot and we went to the hard Rod reunion to get relicensed, and he accommodated me to let me make six passes. And so I had an axe on my top of my helmet. Bill Simpson gave me a helmet, you know, and gave me a new fire suit type of deal and I get up to the starting line, and I had to do a burnout. So, brr, and I backed it up and shut it off. And the announcer goes, and he looks around in the tower. He tells me later, he says, "You know, this guy knows what he's doing. Who is he?" You know. And the people at the museum say, "Well, that's Floyd Lippincott, Jr." You
0: know,
1: type of thing. So later on in that day, so we make six passes, and the last pass was late in the day on Sunday. They let me make my last full pass. And right in the lights, just before the lights, the front end came up of the car. Didn't have enough wing and didn't have enough weight on the front of the car. So I clicked it early. But the car still ran 200 miles an hour in about 640, you know. And so John, we take the thing. And so John calls me up later in the week and says, Wow, well, Bob, he says, you know, maybe you ain't got it anymore, you know, because you kind of shut it off early, the lights and that stuff. And I looked. I talked to John on the phone, I said, John, the front end was up in the air. Remember that weight you took off the front of the car thing and we didn't need it anymore? Mm-hmm. It says right in the lights, when that when that clutch went one to one, that three disc clutch went one to one, it just jerked the front end up a little bit, and I had to click it. Oh, okay. He says, I have no problem that stuff. So then we started in running the good guy program, you know, in two thousand one. Mm-hmm. Went to seven races and, and we won five of them. You know, I was on my game. Yeah. You know, but I surrounded myself with good, competent people that had the driver's safety number one, and that, and that rekindled the whole thing. And I just I really thank John and Jeannie Halstead for allowing me to do that with them, because all the of my wife and kids, all they knew about was stories. They never really saw me dry grapes in competition. Mm. So I was able, some of the pictures I have from those periods of time. Or my most cherished pictures, hmm. you know. That's pretty cool. Kind of a kind of a nice way to clear for it. But if you ask me if I could drive a car today, in a heartbeat.
0: How many how many seasons did you do the nostalgia top fuel?
1: We did it uh, uh, two and a half seasons. You know, two and a half, three seasons and that stuff. But uh, John just wasn't spending the money in the right spot because uh, just just we didn't do it. You know what I mean? Yep. But uh, I even in that particular time, I went to Paul Smith's driving school in Moroso, Florida, to try and get a top fuel driver's license, you know, with a late model car. And uh, pretty interesting car, very boring to drive. There's no noise in the cockpit, no matter how much noise around them. Inside a the, inside the driving compartment in one of those cars, even when you fire them up, it's like the eye of a hurricane. There's no noise. All you hear is gear noise of that, of that gear drive. Ah. In fact, the very first time I fired one up in Arizona, I, and I have earplugs and breathing mass on and that stuff, and I had to turn around to see if there was fire coming out of the pipes. Because all I thought it was it was spinning over on the starter. Because all you could hear was a gear drive. Very, very quiet. You know, it reminded me of the pulsator. The pulsator car was a twin-engine car, which is the pictures behind you, that I'd like to one day resurrect, because I know where that car is. And I think to my tribute to Knife Frank and his expertise, I owe it to him to, to try and restore that car. And the people at the museum and that stuff would love that for that to happen, because it's a, the only streamlined car left in existence of that period in drag racing that I could put that car back together for Chet Herbert and for Knight Frank. You know. But anyways, the the car, the late model cars, they're just they're very quiet. Very, very quiet. Especially in the lights. You know, at at 270 miles an hour, 280 miles an hour.
0: Are they how are they to drive by comparison to say like the the nostalgia top fueler, which would have been your most recent car? before you went for
1: the license? Um, how could I put this nicely? <laughs> um, Are they too easy? They're, let's, let's don't say too easy. Okay. Let's just say there's truly no comparison. You know They're long, so that allows them to be forgiving as far as driving is concerned. You'd have to be really behind the curve, not to be a, a, a up to speed with it. I think a modern driver today in a car that I drove in the old days with a short wheelbase and a smoke. Remember, in the early days of smoking, top fuel cars, you got smoked in for the first 150 feet of the races. Until you kind of mastered sliding the clutch and pulling on the brake. A lot of the guys would tell you that they were smoked in until the car had enough momentum to move out of the smoke. And the smoke cloud followed you for the first three, four well, first 60, 70 feet, mm-hmm. you know. And then all of a sudden it would just says if wind started, it comes to get up speed, the wind and that type of thing. And that's why they didn't go fast, you know, because that first initial speed today, you look at today's speeds, the first 60 feet of launch really tells you what it's going to be at the other end. Mm-hmm. Yep. And like the nostalgia cars, the nostalgia cars at eighth mile would go 200 miles an hour or 220 and only go 260 in the quarter mile. So only 40 miles an hour, Yeah. you know? Same with top fuel.
0: Yeah, you, you rattled off a really interesting ET mile per hour from the early days. Yeah. Early on in this interview, and I, I could swear you said something like low tens, high nines at like 160. Yeah. Is that, did I hear you right? Yeah. So that's double B
1: gas drags your record. I've got paperwork that shows that with plaques.
0: That's a mile per hour of a what? A seven second car, eight second car.
1: Today, the top fuel, the, the freight train would not qualify for pro for for uh, um, pro stock. Pro stock. We're not qualified.
0: Yeah.
1: I a twin engine that. kick ass car. Yep. Yeah. We're not qualified. Well, it speed wise, it would mile an hour. You know exactly
0: that you just did such a huge mile an hour. Yeah, but it's a disparate mile an hour yeah. to ET kind of yeah. ratio. It's hard for me to Yeah, but remember you, back then. you have up in smoke for right. so much of it.
1: Yeah, but even when the tire things came out, we didn't have 60 foot, 360, 660, 1,000 foot, 1320 timing marks. Mm-hmm. So we had nothing to go by. All we knew was start, finish. Mm-hmm. And remember, too, in the early days, The mile per hour clock was another 66 feet past the finish line. So if there was no money up for top gas, for top speed of the event, you'd click it at the ET mark. Mm. Even though the motor only turned over one time in 66 feet, if you ran it 66 feet past the quarter mile, you were wearing a lot of parts. Mm. So there was no money for it. If, if If we went to a national event with a train and it had money up for top speed, I was told to run her out the back light. And so we set the speed at 2.5, 2.6, 2. whatever, 2.10. 2, in fact, the car ran 2.15 a couple times, you know, with the train. Then we, I clicked it at the first mark. And back then, we didn't push down the push-down road. There's a lot of times in some of these tracks, you'd go down the drag strip with your push car. Mm-hmm. And the train would lay track to where I shut it off. It was one of those cars that nowadays they'll do that. They'll lay rubber all the way down. Well, in the old days, even the early top fuel cars didn't do that. The train had enough weight and enough tire that John could always know where I shut the thing off because that's where the tire mark stopped. You know? And if you didn't, you know... Then you get to places like Carlsbad, which was a short little track out there on top of a hill in Paramount, great air because the ocean was reeled by, and you have a division race there, and you want a mile an hour record. In fact, I was there with Don the Beachcomber, Johnson's car, after we won the Mickey meet and that stuff. And after the Winter National, we are there for a points meet, and Don Johnson wanted the top of speed record for top fuel. Remember, back then, those things changed weekly, almost. So I ran it out the back light there, top fuel car, two hundred twenty six miles an hour. It was on the parachute and the brake, you know, and just barely got it stopped before. And there was no sand trap at the end; it was a wall, <laughs> you know, at the end because that was carved out of a canyon.
0: Yeah.
1: You know. Yeah. Type of thing, and they used to do road racing there too. Mm. You know, but those were the things you just did. Mm-hmm. That was expected of you. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, drivers have to have everything fit for you and that stuff. There'd be times at the beach where I'd be driving three or four different cars. Mm. There were set up for guys that were five foot tall, the guys who were six, seven foot tall, six foot six tall, you know, and the drivers just adjusted Some brakes pushed to make them stop. Some are there. Some of the fuel parachutes were here. Some of the parachutes were there. You made the adjustments. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the drivers get in, oh, I don't like this. or oh, we got we to gotta move that, you know. But that's okay. Mm. That's the way they were brought up. But comparing today's cars to those cars, closest seem to come to those cars today are Pro Mods. Mm -hmm. Pro Mods are the the most difficult car in drag racing to drive.
0: Mm. Um, We are officially out of time on the car, but I think it gives me a window of about a minute. Um, But I just want to thank you on behalf of the American Hot Rod Foundation for your time. And your great,
1: great story. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you. So,
0: you know. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's and,
1: uh, very important to me that that every little bit of drag racing and anything you want to have or anybody you want to meet that you want to interview that you can't get a hold of, you call me up because I know where they all buried. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, very good. We appreciate. To that. a point. On that note. My pleasure.
1: Thank you again. Thank you, Dave.
0: <laughs> Well, all right, folks, now we are talking. What a great episode. Really hope you enjoyed that. Huge, huge thanks to Bob Moravas for coming by, taking so much time with us uh, to share his stories and memories from such an amazing life. Um, and, and again, just passing along such uh, awesome amounts of enthusiasm and spirit for this stuff it's just so what it's about um anyway really enjoyed that one hope you guys did too um special thanks today to our announcer as always larry babb and all our staff here at speed shop sound studios in north hollywood california our pr person angela helton social media management from crystal hayes uh, technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan and as always theme song is brought to you by me um, big thanks to our archivist and historian Jim Miller uh, he really does the heavy lifting around here and and is very good at keeping us all on track so we thank him for that uh, the American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian Without their generosity and passion for preserving the history of hot rodding, none of this would be possible. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about the Foundation, please check us out on our website, ahrf.com, where you can support us by checking out our cool new merchandise. Uh, You can also sign up to receive updates on all things going on with the Foundation, as well as learning when new episodes of the Rodcast will be heading your way. So... Just generally uh, keeping up on our quest to preserve any and all things having to do with the history of hot rodding. We can also be found on Instagram and Twitter. And we happen to have what I think is a seriously rocking Facebook page. So uh, please check that out. Uh, Once again, we thank the great Bob Moravez for stopping by to share his incredible story from the world of big time drag racing. And uh, we thank you for tuning in. Uh, Until next time, keep it wheels down and heading straight. And we'll see you here for the next episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.